This is the word from 2 Samuel chapter 9. And David said, Is there anyone left in the house of, the, of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant in the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to, king, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone in the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel at Lodibar. Then king David sent and brought him from the house of Maker, the son of Amiel at Lodibar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of, your, of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for, such, for a dead dog such as I? Then the king said to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring, into, and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson shall have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons, and Mephibosheth had a, son, had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he always ate at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Mercy Hill Church. Happy New Year. Uh, good to be with you as we continue to study uh, the story of David, <clears throat> David's life. Um, I don't know if you have ever battled shame before. I've entitled this message, Battling Self-Contempt. Uh, I can remember when I was in ninth grade and my facial hair began to grow. I know that's hard to believe that I could have facial hair. <clears throat> um, there was a time when I did not. Um, but I discovered, and it turned out, that I had a birthmark on the left side uh, of my face that I never knew about. And it didn't really show up until facial hair started growing. And uh, as a tall, very thin kid in high school who just kind of wanted to run under the radar and go largely unnoticed, I probably weighed in at about a buck thirty. Um, I, I was told things like, uh, you have dirt on the side of your face, or 
were you burned? Um, or it, it seems like you have a bruise. And it, it was constantly someone was telling me that something uh, was wrong with my face because of this extra dark spot. And so um, what do you think I did? I began shaving every day. Like I wanted to make sure that whatever it was about me that was different that I could hide. Now, looking back at my teenage years, that trauma was pretty mild compared to some of the things that many people go through or maybe that even you experience. But wouldn't it be nice if we left shame behind in our teenage years? Wouldn't it be nice if we grew out of shame? We all experience shame in a lot of different ways. Uh, Particularly this time of the year, it seems as if um, we become all the more aware, whether it's shame around body image and the way that we look causes us to carry shame. If we feel as if we don't measure up to other standards, maybe even more hurtful can be attempting to measure up to our own standards. Maybe you can still hear your mom saying, hold your shoulders back. Or some of us experience shame when there's things that we've done in the past that we are ashamed of, things that are still maybe even not just a part of the past, but things that are still a part of our lives today. And uh, we would hope that no one would know about them. Maybe worst is the shame brought on us by others. Experiences that have brought shame upon us that, that we seem to have no choice in. Whether that would be abuse or accidents, or things that you've experienced at the hands of others that have caused you to feel ashamed, to feel different, to feel traumatized, or maybe even paralyzed. Today, we're, as we study the life of David um, in chapter 9 of 2 Samuel, this story tells one of the most amazing stories, yet one of the greatest stories of shame. The story of shame that a man carried his entire life. Since the age of five, his life was filled with shame. But this story, as painful and sad as it appears, it points us to the reality of the gospel's power To free us from shame. And to free us from the dehumanizing self-contempt that we all experience on a daily basis. Self-contempt is the act of despising our own selves. Self-contempt is fueled by our past experiences. It's fueled by our sin. And oftentimes it's fueled by our own inner critic telling us that we aren't good enough. The story of Melphibosheth illustrates the power of life-changing grace. Amazing grace. Unmerited favor that transforms how, how God sees us and causes us to emotionalize the truths of the gospel. So that the gospel doesn't just become something that's out there that we have revisited at this time of the year... And we know that Jesus has come as a baby. And then as we begin to look forward and know that we will think of him in the cross and the resurrection. 
But the gospel isn't merely facts. This story helps us to emotionalize the truths of the gospel. To begin to see ourselves as God sees us. As remarkable. As wondrously made. As valuable and worthy of love. And if that sounds too good to be true, then maybe we're beginning to hint at God's amazing grace. The gospel rehumanizes us when we begin to understand the amazing grace of Jesus. And maybe Mephibosheth is the greatest illustration of grace in all the Old Testament. Let's look at it together, beginning in verses 1 through 3. And David said... Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant in the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And, and the king said to him, are you, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The context up to this point is that David has experienced uh, incredible military victory. In fact, Psalm 2 uh, speaks to uh, the place that David is in. And if you read through uh, 2 Samuel chapter 8, you'll see that the Lord is indicating Uh, In this new Davidic covenant and in the reign of King David, that all of the world will be his. And he's showing that as David uh, and his armies just take territory after territory after territory. It seems that there's no way that they can be stopped. And in their success, we pick up in chapter 9. And in the midst of David's military success, as all begins to finally settle down in peace. David does something most unusual. Instead of turning inward like it's so natural for us to do. For instance, how many of you have any Christmas money left? Like, I mean, the money that was given to you, a couple of you. But, but, but let's be honest, most of us, we got a gift card, we received some money, it's gone. Right? I mean, it was burning a hole in our pocket, and we, we took care of that. And that's kind of what's most natural for us to do when we meet success. Christmas is already spent. But David turns toward others, lifting the weak versus promoting himself. And, and this is a result of a life that has experienced overwhelming grace. What you are seeing in David's life in this passage, there is nothing about it that's natural. There's nothing about it that you and your own strength should say, I want to be like David. I'm going to live like David. It's impossible. David is living out the results of an amazing grace that's been poured into his life. Now, it is possible for us to live in this way, but only through the power of the Spirit because it's so unnatural. And David is overwhelmed by the grace of God. And he asks the question, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? David's remembering that past promise. 
that he had made not only just to Jonathan, but he had made it to Saul as well. That moment where he had the opportunity to take Saul's life, he had made the promise to Saul that he would allow their families to continue to live, to be spared. Both Jonathan and Saul had asked David to promise that, that he wouldn't wipe out all their descendants from the earth when he became king. And, and that was very much the common practice. I mean, what David has done, it's hard for us to understand how unusual this is. Extinguish all known family members. If you do that, then no one can claim to be the rightful heir to the throne. And that was the common practice. But David not only remembers his promise, but he begins to search. To search far and wide to see if there's anyone left of the house of Jonathan who he could extend grace to. Now, as you read this story, if you read in between the lines a little bit, it seems that there must have been an extensive search. I mean, they find this servant, Ziba, that David doesn't even know. He confirms that Ziba was indeed a servant of Saul. And then, finally, Ziba seems to reluctantly confirm that one known relative of Jonathan is alive, a son. Footnote. Ziba makes it clear, but he's crippled. Now, this is reading in between the lines, but it seems as if he might be saying, he's crippled. David, not the kind of guy you want to associate with, not the kind of guy you want to have a part of your court, especially in this day and time in which David ruled. Now, pick up in verse 4, and look at David's grace-filled response. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel of Lo-Debar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Maker, the son of Amiel at Lo-Debar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. Notice that David doesn't hesitate. He, he doesn't ask if, if there is anyone who is worthy of the covenant or of the promise that he's made. David simply pursues. He said, where is he? And the response tells us a lot about Mephibosheth's story. They say, oh, this son is at Lo-Debar. In Hebrew, Lo means no. And Debar means, it's from the root word meaning pasture or pasture land. So no pasture. No pasture land. So this son of, of the great Jonathan. Grandson of, of King Saul. Maybe even heir to the throne one day. He's living in a place of unimaginable desolation. He lives out in an obscure barren field in Palestine. Far, far from Jerusalem. Now, I don't, I don't know if you understand uh, just the height from which Mephibosheth has fallen. Let me put this in southern ease for you, okay? Some of you are from the south. I know you're not all from the south, but if you live in the south, you speak southern ease. So this is southern ease. You take the Buck Snort exit, and when you pass the last trailer home at the end of the dirt road where the power lines stop, 
You go another nine miles down that little, that little cow trail. And at the end of that cow trail, you come to a point where Mephibosheth lives in a little shack. In the middle of nowhere. Do you get the picture now? Not only do we know that he lives at Lodabar. No pasture land. Nothing there to be farmed. Nothing there for cattle to be able to eat and to grow. But we finally get his name, and his name is Mephibosheth. And so the question becomes, what happened? How do you, how do you fall so far? And the story reveals it in 2 Samuel 4, verse 4. It tells that when Mephibosheth was five years old, you want to hear about a bad day? Think you've had a bad day? Listen to Mephibosheth. When he was five years old, the report of Saul and Jonathan's death came from the battlefield. His nurse picked him up to flee, but in her haste, he somehow fell and was paralyzed in his legs. Imagine for just a moment all that Mephibosheth lost on that day. As a five-year-old, he lost his inheritance, his place in the palace. He went from living in a palace to complete poverty with no future and no hope. He lost as a five-year-old all the male role models in his life. His grandfather, who happened to be the king, Jonathan, his father. Suddenly, all the role models, male role models, gone. He, let, he lost at age five, not only his inheritance and, and his, his male role models, he lost his mobility. All future ability to work and make a living and be self-sustaining, all lost. And in this day and time, left him at a place of hopelessness. Hopeless. What does a person do when they feel hopeless? With no future? When they're ashamed of who they are? They go and hide. And that's exactly what Mephibosheth has done. And that's what he's been doing for the last 15 to 20 years. So he's 25 years old now. And he has his own child. We learn later in the story. Imagine the scene as David's soldiers show up after all this time. And they show up at Mephibosheth's rural home. And he's got to be wondering, how did they even find me? And they escort him back to Jerusalem. What was he thinking? Surely the worst must have been about to take place. I mean, if you go back and you, if it's been a while since you've read through First and Second Kings, then you will come. You need to go back and read because you will understand that Mephibosheth knew that there was nothing good that could come from the ruler of your nation showing up if you were the, the former grandson of the former king. I mean, if you look back at, at second, read 2 Kings 10, Jehu had no problem taking the heads of 70 of Ahab's sons. Ahab was the former king. Jehu took them all and he piled them up at the city gates for all to see. That was the norm. Now, Mephibosheth falls on his face. He throws himself before the mercy of King David. And David's response, and I want you to hear this. Because this is where this story becomes so personal for you and for me. David's response is a picture of Jesus. The ultimate king. And the way in which Jesus embraces all men and women who fall down before him. Listen to his response in verses 7 through 13. 
And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? And then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Consider David's response for just a moment. Because this is Jesus' response to all of us who surrender to him. David said, don't be afraid. In verse 7, he goes on and he says, eat at my table. And then finally he says, be like a son. Consider for just a moment the drama of this story. Like really think about the drama. That as Mephibosheth throws himself prostrate before King David, the audience. I mean, if we understood those who were there in the court, they would gasp. As they wait for his head to fall to the floor. Dismembered from his body. That would be the norm. But instead, David flips the script. And in our lives, the gospel flips the script. And Jesus says, you have every right and every reason to be afraid. Because every bit of your life has been turned against me. But God looks at us and says, because of my son, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. David had every reason to put Mephibosheth to death. But instead, he shows him unearned, unmerited kindness. Grace is what the Hebrew word all throughout the Old Testament. Hesed, grace. Not because of anything that Mephibosheth had done. And what a great picture. Because, not because of anything he could do. I mean, look at him. He's useless in our eyes. I mean, if we look at Mephibosheth through physical eyes, he is useless. Not because of anything that he could have done, but because the covenant David had made with Jonathan, Mephibosheth's father. Mephibosheth's response indicates the unbelievable nature of this chain of events. Look at how he responds. He says, Who am I that you should pay attention to a dead dog? He didn't call himself a dog. He calls himself a dead dog. Look at the shame that, the utter shame that he feels, that he carries. But David doesn't stop there. He invites Mephibosheth to his royal table. 
and restores to him the land of Saul that Ziba's sons and servants will now till. They'll produce food for him. I mean, think about the change, the contrast that's taking place in his life. But this is simply for his family and his household because David makes it very clear to Mephibosheth, you will always eat at my table. Unbelievable. Why would David invite this crippled man to his royal table? Chuck Swindoll writes so beautifully. He says, picture what life would be like in the years to come at the supper table with David. The meal is fixed and the dinner bell rings and along come the members of the family and their guests. There's Amnon, clever and witty. He comes to the table first and then there's Joab. Uh, He's one of the guests who's muscular and masculine and he's attractive. His skin bronze from the sun. He's walking tall and erect like an experienced soldier. Next comes Absalom. Talk about handsome. From the crown of his head to the soles of his feet, there's not a blemish on him. Then there's Tamar. Beautiful, tender, daughter of David. And Later on, one could add Solomon as well. He's been in the study all day, but he finally slips away from his work and makes his way to the table. But then they hear this clump, 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 clump. And here comes Mephibosheth, hobbling along. He smiles and humbly joins the others as he takes his place at the table as one of the king's sons. And the tablecloth of grace covers his feet. Oh, what a scene. The meaning of this story is so simple and clear. You and I are Mephibosheth. We were born into a royal family in which there was relationship with God. We walked with him in pleasant places in the garden. But sin broke into our world just as it did in Mephibosheth's. And sin that we had nothing to do with personally. The sin of our parents, Adam and Eve. We were paralyzed as a result. Kicked out of the royal courts of God kicked out of the Garden of Eden, sentenced to a place of unimaginable desolation in which we would struggle to find hope, struggle to find meaning, crippled by the fall of mankind so that we no longer possess the spiritual ability to please God or claim a place in His kingdom. We all live in Lodabar. We all live in a place of no pasture. Unable to bear lasting fruit. Unable to gain true satisfaction from our lives. And just like Mephibosheth, as offspring of a disgraced and outcast human race, we were born into rebellion against God, at war with the kingdom of His Son. The Bible calls unbelieving men and women God's enemies. In Romans 5 verse 10, He calls us, the Bible says that we are children of wrath. In Ephesians 2. And even children of the devil. In John 8. And so just like Mephibosheth. We're sinners who are terrified. To meet with God. Terrified. That God would come and that he would seek after us. A.W. Pink writes. 
he is afraid of God and seeks to banish him from his thoughts. The knowledge of God's holiness, his power and omniscience fills him with dismay and he seeks to have nothing to do with him. That is our state in life. We are Mephibosheth. We're helpless to restore our lives or our favor with God. But the greater David, King Jesus, came on a rescue mission. Seeking us. Seeking us out that he would show us undeserved kindness. Before we even thought of Jesus, he was thinking of us. Do you see how closely the story aligns with our stories before we step toward him he was already coming for us and God declares don't be afraid because there is forgiveness in Jesus eat at my table because I desire intimate fellowship and communion with you but God doesn't stop it merely offering forgiveness He doesn't stop at merely restoring relationship. He also adopts us and gives us all the rights and privileges as his children. It's almost unfathomable. This is how Paul could write in Galatians 4, 7. You are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Can you imagine this story? If Mephibosheth had said, no, I reject your kindness, off with my head. Or worse, send me back to Lodabar. That's my home. That's what men, women, and children do today. When they refuse to kneel and surrender to Jesus. To accept the gift of forgiveness, fellowship, entrance into a family of God. The Bible promises again and again that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, that we will be saved. What an incredible promise to sit at God's table of grace. I wonder if you're here today as you hear this story, if you've ever made that decision, if you need to make that decision today to say, God, I want to sit at your table of grace. I need your forgiveness to bow my knees before you. There's never been a moment in your life where you've prayed and asked God to forgive you. To come into a relationship with him. To be a part of this family. I'll be in the back later. I'd love to talk with you. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to tell you more about how you can become a child of the king. But I wonder how many Christians are here today who have forgotten the, in- the incredible story of God's grace. They've forgotten the acceptance that Jesus has extended to them. And they've gone back to Lodabar. To live in that place of no pasture land. To live in that place of no hope. That they've given up their place around the table. That they've forgotten that they're a son and a daughter of God. I was really moved by um, this quote that... uh, came in an email last week it was an advent reading and Clifton Roth said one of the most troubling and painful realities of our human brokenness is the hidden and many times not so hidden negative core beliefs about ourselves we all in varying degrees are battling self-contempt 
For some, it's the perfectionistic inner critic telling you that you aren't enough. For others, there are, there are dominating thoughts of never measuring up to the moving target of success. However it's expressed in you, it's important to remember that your self-contempt is dehumanizing. Self-contempt is self-dehumanization. Furthermore, self-inflicted hate is just as dangerous and as deadly, if not more so, as the hatred and dehumanization you may have experienced from the abusive hands or mouth of another. We need hope and healing from this deadly poison. Where does that hope and healing come from? Where do we find hope from the inner critic who constantly tells us that we don't look right, that we're not enough, that we don't have what it takes, that others don't like us? All the, all the deadly poison that we experience, not just from others, but from ourselves on a daily basis. Where, where do we find hope in, in battling this kind of self-contempt? I think we realize that we never will be enough on our own. But because of Jesus, God invites us to his table. He invites us to be his sons and to be his daughters. He tells us that we are wondrously made. He looks at us and he says the accomplishments that we will have in this life will never be enough. And that they don't have to be. Because what Jesus has done is already enough. The story of Mephibosheth, maybe more than any story in the Old Testament, shows us the amazing grace of Jesus Christ. And in this story we hear the truths of the gospel that would echo all the way to Jesus and then all the way throughout eternity. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my burden upon you. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls around my table. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray together.